favorites to watch was Little Mermaid. And uh, you probably have watched Little Mermaid too. It seems like a long time ago. But uh, you'll probably remember in that scene where Ariel is kind of coming up below, coming up from below, coming up to the surface, and she's gone into her cave of wonders, as it were, and she's brought out all of these forks. And she kind of comes up to the surface, and she's talking to, to Scuttle the seagull, and she's like, hey, what, like, what are these? Like, what do humans use these things for? And Scuttle, you know, is like this authority on all things human. He says, quite convincingly, he says, oh, those are called dingle hoppers. And he said, uh, humans use them to brush their hair. And, you know, Ariel's super excited. She goes back down to her cave. And fast forward to the scene, right, where she's with Prince Eric. She's meeting the family for the first time, right? She's at dinner. And there, the dinner setting, right, is forks and knives and spoons. And she immediately picks up the fork, right? And she, like, starts brushing her hair with this fork. And everybody's just kind of, like, staring at her, saying, like, what in the world are you doing? Why are you brushing your hair with a fork. That's not what a fork was made for, right? A fork was made to get food from a plate up to your mouth, right? It's not made to brush your hair, although it can do that. My girls have tried to brush their hair with a fork, and maybe you have too, but it's not what it was made for. And I think a lot of times when we come to a topic like marriage, uh, oftentimes, especially Christians, we can treat marriage like a dinglehopper, right? We think we know what marriage is for, and we can use marriage in a way that maybe even works for us, But in order for us to understand what marriage is for, we really have to understand what marriage was actually designed for. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we can be engaged in marriage. We can even have good marriages. I tell people all the time, even even unbelievers have good marriages, right? Christians don't have the corner on good marriages per se. And so our goal is not just to have a good marriage and to evaluate it in light of, hey, do we not have conflict? Do we love each other? Do we have a good relationship? The answer of, do we have a good marriage, always has to be answered in light of, are we fulfilling the purpose by which God designed and created marriage for? So that's what we're going to kind of do in this first session. We're going to do a lot of work in Scripture, trying to lay out a foundation for what is marriage all about. And we'll go to the storyline of Scripture and really see what God designed marriage for. For most of you, if you've grown up in the church or if you're familiar with Scripture, this is going to seem like a little bit of a rehearsal for you. But uh, as, as Peter tells us in Second Peter, this is more by way of reminder for you than to stir you up by way of reminder. So if you have the Bible, let me invite you to turn over with me to Genesis 1. We're just going to move through this creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We'll be in Scripture a lot, so just kind of keep your Bible handy with you. But let me read to you from Genesis 1, 26 or 28. It says, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. From these opening verses, some really important fundamental pieces of this story of marriage come into view. And the first of which is this is, number one, you and I, we have a creator. We have a creator. We didn't just get here by chance. And because we have a creator and we didn't just get here by chance, that means that we are created in God's image as people who are valuable and have purpose, who have dignity and respect. 
Uh, Secondly, we learn that we are created beings. Not only do we have a creator, but we are created beings. And being a created being means that we're dependent. We weren't ever meant to function on our own. We were made to be dependent on our creator, our creator God who made us. Uh, thirdly, we see from Genesis 127 that we were created to be gendered beings, gendered beings, right? It is very clear from the opening pages that gender is a good gift of God. And we could go into all of the different details of how Genesis 1 is set up in terms of how God is creating these binaries of light and dark, land and sea, land animals and sea animals, and, and all of these different binaries that when he gets to Genesis 1, 26 or 27, it makes sense then that having two opposites, a male and a female, is actually a picture of God's faithfulness and goodness. So we have a creator, we're created, we're gendered, uh, we're sexual beings. John in Genesis 1.28, right, it says, be fruitful and multiply. And we see that this command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to engage in procreation is a part of God's good design. Sex is a part of God's good design. And that that sexual relationship we see, again, from the very beginning is to be within this covenanted marriage relationship. So we are created, we're gendered, we're sexual, and then finally, we're relational beings. Just very simply put, we are relational beings. Genesis 2.18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.18, I'll make a helper. And just, I'll make a quick comment here on helper. A lot of times, I think when we read the Genesis narrative, uh, we can read helper as like, yeah, you know, Adam... Adam had like some strengths, but he also had some weaknesses, and he kind of just needed a a helper, kind of like a a domestic counterpart around him uh, in the Garden of Eden, right? Like, you know, Adam's going to name animals, but like Eve's going to go out and do the gardening. You know, Adam's going to like get the food, and then Eve's going to cook it. And, you know, if he doesn't have Eve, then these, these weaknesses won't be compensated. But I really don't think that is the message of what Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about. I think that the movement, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, is that this idea of Eve being a helper for Adam is to meet this fundamental need that Adam should not be alone. So for Eve to be a helper for him means that she comes into his life so that that both of them together can fully image God. John Walton, an Old Testament commentator, is helpful on this point. He says, the word helper is common enough as a description of someone who comes to the aid of or provides a service for someone, but it carries no implications regarding the relationship or relative status of the individuals involved. And then he goes on to talk about how most of the times when we actually see the word helper used in Genesis, it always refers to God, right? Not in, not in, a, not in a way that should describe anything in terms of them being less than. He goes on to say this. He says, we find a continuing predominance of God as the subject of being a helper. He says, nothing suggests a subservient status of the one helping. And so sometimes I think we can, because of our cultural baggage that we can kind of come into a different text like this, we can immediately assume, well, you know, Adam's up here, you know, the husband's up here, and Eve's kind of like down here. She's kind of like this kind of helper in more of a domestic or menial sense, but that is not uh, what we see. We see that God created both Adam and Eve in his image and for a purpose. 
Now, if you go down to Genesis 2, 19 through 25, you see this wonderful narrative where God forms Eve and creates Eve, and you see that in Genesis 2, at least in my Bible, in the ESV, all of that language up until Genesis 2, 23, it's all kind of blocked out, right? Kind of like prose, like the, the uh, editors and the type editors are trying to show you. This is all prose. It's narrative. But when you get to verse 23, you probably notice it's inset differently, right? And that's the uh, typesetters and the, the, the people trying to help communicate that this is a different kind of language here. This is poetry. This is Adam exulting and crying out in song that this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's this beautiful picture, right? Husbands, if you want to score brownie points, I guess today you could, you could do this when you get home, like break out in song, write a poem for your wife, right? Uh, we, would be well, uh, we would be taking our cue from Scripture there. But that, that is essentially what we see, that up until this point, Adam right? Adam's not seen anything like this, right? He's been naming animals all day in the garden. He realizes that there's pairs for everybody except for him. God sees that it's not good that he should be alone. God creates Eve. And the the movement, right, that the movement for Adam is at last, right? At last, I have found the one. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, We wish that we could just stop the story there, right? But we know that when you just look over one verse to move to chapter 3, the story takes quite an abrupt turn. So Genesis 3, we'll pick it up in verse 8. It says, They, talking about Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, right? We know the story, Satan tempts Eve, Eve partakes of the fruit, she gives it to Adam, and human history uh, is never the same. And what we immediately see then is that the effects of this event, what we call the fall, come into sharp focus. And we see four things happen just here in these first few verses of Genesis 3. The first thing is that we see that the relationship with God is fractured. The relationship with God is fractured. It says that man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This idea of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it's a Hebrew metaphor for friendship. This idea that there was this rhythm and practice that every day Adam and Eve would go out into the garden, they would walk with God. Now, suddenly that's broken. It's broken because of their sin. That's the very first effect that comes into the fall is that this relationship that they have enjoyed up until this point is now broken. Secondly, their relationship with themselves is damaged. The way that they actually see and relate to themselves is damaged. They say, I was afraid because I was naked, right? Up until this point, they were naked and unashamed. Adam and Eve could stand before one another naked and unashamed, and now suddenly there's this fundamental realization of, I can't do that. I I recognize my nakedness, and the nakedness which before was not an opportunity for shame, now it is. Uh, Thirdly, their relationship with each other is destroyed. Their relationship with God is fractured. Their relationship with self is damaged. Their relationship with each other is destroyed, right? Immediately, we see the first fight, (laughs) the first conflict in marriage, right? The, The woman, right? She doesn't even get a name at this point, right? The woman that you gave to be with me, right? Blame shifting his responsibility over to Eve. And then fourthly, we see that the relationship with the created realm is complicated. In verses 17 through 19, we see the curse of the fall. We see basically, hey, Adam and Eve, everything in life that you thought was going to be easy, all the different ways you're caring for the garden, guess what? It's going to be hard. 
from farming to childbirth and everything in between, life is going to be hard. Sin permeates every aspect of Adam and Eve's existence and their being. It's not just the bad things that they do, the fights they get into, the conflicts they're going to have, right? It's the fact that their nature now has been corrupted. And friends, I think that a lot of times, especially in marriage, we forget that our marriage troubles, all of the troubles that you and I experience in marriage, from the sufferings that you face, the evils that you endure, the conflicts that you're engaged in, the difficulties that that seem to ensnare you, right? Those all stem from practical consequences of the fall. And a failure then to understand really the extent of Genesis 3 and how it impacts your marriage will always lead you to short-sighted and gospel-less solutions, right? If you don't understand the full effect and impact of Genesis 3 on your marriage, then here's what you're always going to be after. Well, if we just had better communication, if we just had a better sex life, if we just had uh, more well-behaved children, right? If we just had this, if everything in marriage problem-oriented is just behavioral, just, man, if we could just get this one uh, area of our marriage fixed, well, then you completely get to bypass the gospel, right? Because the gospel is what answers our deepest needs in marriage, which is not better communication or better sex or a better conflict resolution. It is you need rescued from yourself. You need rescued from yourself. And so we have to continue to keep that at the front of our minds as we engage in marriage and as we carry on, which is why then for Adam and Eve in particular, the words in Genesis 3.15 become such needed words of hope and help to them. In Genesis 3.15, these first words of the gospel, uh, as commentators like to call it, uh, God says to Adam and Eve, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This this movement, this, this word of hope that God says, listen, it's not always going to be like this. One day, there's coming a day, where I am going to address the problems and the evils that you have faced. And those promises then of Genesis 3.15, they linger for a long time in history. And the Old Testament people are waiting for the true and embodied fulfillment of, uh, of who's that going to be? Who or what is going to fulfill the promises of Genesis 3.15? What, what's really going to heal all of these relationships? What's going to make the relationship between us and God, ourselves, each other, and even ultimately creation. And I'll just tell you this, the world is more than happy to come in and offer you a lot of solutions to how to make your marriage work, right? If you go to Barnes & Noble, if you go onto Amazon.com and just type in marriage or how to make your marriage better, I mean, you're going to get tons and tons of different ideas from therapy to if you had more money or if you had less kids or if you had more kids or if you had less stress or uh, personal improvement or just become a better version of yourself. There are so many books out there on the market that are going to tell you, hey, here's how you can have a better marriage, right? Culturally right now, I'd say the thing that, uh, at least from what I see and from what I read, that uh, makes marriages work from a cultural sense is that you need to find a partner in life who is going to help you become the best you possible. So find somebody who is going to be your number one cheerleader, your number one fan, and who's going to help you self-realize every dream or desire that you might have. Uh, Eli Finkel, who's a sociologist and does a lot of study on marriage, he writes this. He says, in contrast to our predecessors or our ancestors who looked at their marriage to help them survive, he says, we now look to our marriage to meet our needs, 
to meet our needs, our needs for passion and intimacy. And he says to, quote, facilitate our voyages of self-discovery and personal growth, right? Doesn't that sound good, right? Because culturally, marriage is very much about that, right? Culturally, marriage is no longer a relationship where we are trying to bring glory to God in how we live, but marriage is much more about a vehicle that is all about helping service our personal needs and our personal desires, which is why today, even in the Christian church, marriage can be difficult because we have been led to believe that marriage is really all about you, It's about your happiness. It's about getting your needs met. It's about finding somebody who's compatible with you. And I'm not saying that any of those are bad. I'm just saying, is that what it's primarily about? And to find out what it's primarily about, again, we have to go back to what? We have to go back to the one who designed it. So if we kind of come back to the biblical story, we see that God's way of making relationships work is radically different than what culture is going to say, hey, here's what makes marriage work. And I'll tell you what makes marriage work, and it's not going to be a surprise to you because I know that you're well-taught people. What makes marriages work is the gospel, the good news that you cannot save yourself, but that salvation comes from another, and that that salvation comes to us, friends, from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives himself for us to rescue us from the real cause of all of our relational difficulties, all of the troubles that beset us, and he gives us rescue from who? Not from our spouse, but from who? From ourselves, right? You want to know who the biggest problem in in marriage is? It's you, right? It's not your spouse, right? If you uh, are coming here today to learn about how to change your spouse or how to fix them, you'll probably be sorely disappointed because this is about how God can change you. Uh, There's a a recent marriage book that came out from uh, some professors at Westminster, uh, Chad and Emily Van Dixhorn, and I forgot the title, but it's one of my favorite books because at the back of the book, they have an appendix, and the appendix's title is How to Change Your Spouse, and the page is blank. It's a blank appendix, and I love it. I'm like, it's a great tool. You don't have to write anything, but it gets the point across, right? How do you change your spouse? Give me a marriage book about how to change my spouse. There's nothing. But here we do have in Scripture, how do we change, right? How do we change? Well, it's only through Christ. Romans 5, 1 through 2, this this story of redemption gets put like this from Paul. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right, that fundamental problem that you and I have, that first problem that appears where Adam and Eve are hiding from God, that's the first problem that has to be addressed in any marriage, right? Before you ever get to your spouse or your children or whatever, friends, the number one thing that has to be resolved is your personal relationship with the Lord. And the only way that that gets solved and taken care of is not by trying harder, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, knowing more Bible verses, coming to church. It is by being justified by Christ. So with that sweeping story in view, moving from Genesis all the way through to the Gospels, you and I might think, right, well then marriage, right, marriage must be this ultimate relationship in life that we are called to, but we have to remember that we would probably be swinging that pendulum too far to the other side if we made marriage then into the ultimate relationship that we're pursuing. Greg Lanier writes this to help reorient in those expectations He says, for married Christians, he says, there is comfort in taking seriously, quote, till death do us part. 
He says, marriage between one man and one woman is a beautiful gift of God, but it cannot bear the weight of serving as your ultimate end. It cannot bear the weight of serving as your ultimate end, right? And so that can sometimes be the danger that you and I face as Christians is that, man, this relationship, it's a good relationship. And Scripture talks a lot about this relationship. But when we begin to pursue this relationship as an end unto itself, meaning turning it again into a vehicle for our own pleasure and our own glory, we again miss out on what the true goal of this relationship is. And so, how do we know this to be true, and, and what is the end goal for it? Well, let's head to the very end, to the, the last part of the story, consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn over to Matthew 22. We won't read the whole thing together, but I'm sure you're familiar with this story. In Matthew 22, 23 through 33, the Sadducees are talking to Jesus. They're kind of trying to get him tripped up. It's like a stump the professor type of conversation. And they're like, hey, you know, if, you know, Bob's, you know, wife, you know, Bob dies and then she marries the next door neighbor's brother and son, you know, who's, who, who's she going to be married to up in heaven, essentially? And the Sadducees were trying to get Jesus into a situation where he would trip up or say something embarrassing, Uh, but Jesus, as he so often does, just completely reveals them for the ones who are foolish. And he says in verse 30 of Matthew 23, he says, for in the resurrection, he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Matthew 22, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, 30. He says, for in the resurrection, in this future state, People are neither marrying or given in marriage. And I think for a lot of us, uh, that's, that's something that might be new for us for the first time, right? And, you know, if you, have, uh, if you know Mormons, for instance, Mormons and Mormon theology, you are married forever, right? And you marry, uh, you marry uh, your wife and you populate a planet. The woman is uh, perpetually pregnant and uh, just populating a planet. And most women would say, that's not my idea of heaven, right? Uh, that's not what I'm thinking heaven is going to be, married to this man that I've uh, been married to here on earth right? And Scripture then gives us a very, very different story, right? What we realize then is that heaven represents the end of marriage as you and I are engaged in it now and as we know it because you and I as Christians will be living the fullest reality of marriage as the bride of Christ. And so again, it's not that there isn't marriage in heaven, but that there's only one marriage in heaven. It is us being married to Christ as the bride. In God's story, then, we see started with marriage in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, and the beautiful thing is that it ends with a marriage as well. Revelation 19, 6 through 10, I'll just read this for you. Uh, The Apostle John sees this vision. He says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Right, That story that we started with, that marriage between Adam and Eve, now John tells us that it's going to find its finest and its fullest fulfillment in our marriage to Christ. Marriage does not become a less important reality in heaven, but we realize that marriage here on earth 
is preparing us for this very moment that we as believers should be eagerly anticipating. And I'll tell couples now who've been married maybe for a little bit of a longer time have just gotten to like a little bit of a plateau point and they're kind of maybe just not really happy in their relationship, their marriage relationship. I'll say, listen, if you're not happy in marriage now and you don't like marriage now, you're going to hate heaven because in heaven we are eternally married. We are eternally married as the bride of Christ. And so what we realize and what we have to understand as Christians is that marriage is not eternal, but this relationship that we engage in is teaching us and training us and preparing us for our future home in heaven, right? That's a very different narrative arc, right, when we think about marriage than what the world puts out there to us, right? It's a very different arc in terms of storyline than, than what oftentimes we allow ourselves to functionally believe, right? I don't think I'm probably telling you anything that you don't already know, but again, by way of reminder, we have to come to periods like this in our time and in our story to be reminded of these things to help us keep this, this biblical story and vision in view. So in light of that, in light of that story, I just want to give us three points of application, just three points that, again, as we try to make sense of this storyline of marriage, okay, what do we do with that, right? What do we actually do with this, and, and what are you wanting us to leave here with? So we'll talk about, number one, how marriage bears God's mission. We'll talk about how marriage bears God's mission. Secondly, we'll see that marriage helps us incarnate God's love. It helps us incarnate God's love. And then thirdly, we'll see that marriage is transforming you into God's image. Marriage is transforming you into God's image. We'll talk about all three of these briefly. So let's talk about marriage bears God's mission. Going back to our discussion from the very beginning, right? I think so many couples, and I'm pointing the finger at myself too. I do this all the time. So everything I talk about this morning, I'm, I'm trying to preach in real time back to myself. But I think a lot of couples, we can treat marriage kind of like Ariel does with the dingle hopper, right? We've just kind of made it into something that meets whatever functional needs that we have. And sure, it might work for you, right? Marriage as you're doing it might be working for you. But I guess the question that I would want to press into each of you today or press into uh, with you today is this, is, is that really though what marriage is made for? Are you really living in a relationship as God's purposed it and designed it for. The question of, do you have a good marriage, can only be answered in light of getting the first question correct, which is, what is marriage made for, right? The only way that you can answer the question today of, do I have a good marriage, is if you get the first question right. And the first question is, what is marriage designed and intended for? Marriage, right? Marriage is ultimately about two individuals coming together for the glory of God. And friends, I'll tell couples this all the time in settings like this and then in marriage counseling, without a shared vision in marriage, there will be division in marriage. Without a shared vision in marriage, there will be division in marriage. I see couples all the time coming into it, and especially newly married couples, and they say, well, you know, listen, it's fine if we have different pursuits or goals. You know, my goal is just to try to help them accomplish whatever they want. Uh, but then five, six years later down the road, what I see is either they completely diverge past, they're like roommates, they're passing like ships in the night, or those divergent visions actually produce what? conflict and turmoil and, hey, I want to do this. Well, no, I want to do this. I want to go back to school. No, I want to stay here. I think we should move. I think we should use our finances this way. 
If there's not a shared vision in marriage, there will be division in marriage. And so that's why it is so key in marriage to get the mission right. That's why, again, if you've not if you're single here today and pursuing marriage, that's why getting a mission match, quote-unquote, is so important in marriage, right? Not marrying somebody who doesn't share your faith, right? You're already setting yourself up from the very beginning to have division down the road. You want to marry someone with whom you share a common vision of what this relationship is for. Uh, Tim Savage, uh, who wrote one of my favorite books on marriage, has this extended quote, and I think that it's so impactful. He says, a more weighty rationale and a more transcendent vision is required to lift husbands and wives to the heights of marital fulfillment. He says only one thing qualifies, the glory of God, the glory of God. He says here is something so powerful that it transcends the most difficult challenges of life. Here is a provision so dependable that it can lift marriages to awe-inspiring heights. Here's a beacon so intense that it can show the way out of the darkest crisis. Here's a vision so permanent that it can outlast every temporary obstacle. Here is something supernatural, something beyond what mere humans bring to a partnership. Here is the cement of marriage. Here is the rope that binds when husbands and wives unite for the glory of God. They unite indeed, right? I think that's just such a good and a necessary reminder for all of us here today, right? That the shared mission, the shared vision for you and I as husbands and for those of you who are wives today is to pursue the glory of God in your relationship. Now, how, here's, here's the big question, right? We might say, well, pursuing the glory of God, that's just like kind of a Christianese phrase, like, yeah, we all need to be glorifying God, which I would agree with. That, that can turn into a trite platitude. But the question I would put forward to you today then is practically then, what does it look like for the two of you? as husband and wife, to pursue the glory of God in your marriage. What is your mission? I, I'm astounded and confounded. Oftentimes, I'll talk to couples who've been married seven, eight, nine, ten years, and I'll say, well, what is your marriage about? Like, what, is there a, a common mission or a vision statement, right? We're always talking about mission and vision statements. I would go, do, do, do you have one? Has there ever been a, a time where the two of you have said, hey, this is what we want our marriage to be about. This is what we want to pursue underneath this heading of marriage for God's glory. And they'll, they'll just kind of shake their heads and kind of shrug their shoulders. Well, no. I mean, we've talked about we want to have kids. We want to have a happy life. We'd like to make six figures by the time that we're this age. We want to have this much in our retirement account. But nothing about how do those things actually help you fulfill your mission and vision. So one of the assignments I would give you, uh, if you wanted an assignment, you might not want one, so I'm giving it to you anyways, uh, is this, is if you don't have a mission statement in marriage, then make one. Make up a mission statement or a vision statement for your marriage. When uh, my wife and I were getting married, our premarital counselors, that was one of the very first things that they did with us in premarital. They said, listen, come up with a mission statement. It can be two or three sentences. Uh, it can be two or three sentences that you, you say, listen, what are your gifts? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Where has God placed you in life, right? What do you want to pursue? And what happens then, friends, is that mission and vision statement, can it change and alter? Of course, it's not written in stone, but it gives you a little bit of a North Star, right? It gives you a little bit of a sense of, okay, as we pursue God's glory, this is how we want to do it. Uh, for my wife and I, when we uh, were making our mission and vision statement as we were praying, we, we basically came down to two things. We said we want to be committed to counseling, 
We want to be committed to discipleship in the local church. And so as we have made decisions about where to move, how to get educated, where to live, how to spend our resources, it has been over the past 17 years, it's been oriented towards do these things help us fulfill our mission as a couple? That we want to give our lives to counseling and we want to give our lives to discipleship in the local church, right? Now, for some of you, that might be different. Some of you might say, hey, we believe God's gifted us with uh, amazing business acumen and business sense. And so we believe that to pursue marriage for the glory of God is we want to be able to faithfully give and to be faithfully hospitable to our neighborhood and our community and our church. And that would be a way then that you pursue God's glory in marriage, but have something have something, right? Don't, don't, don't just think that you can go through marriage and just navigate it without a mission or a vision because I'll tell you what, if you don't have a goal, right, you're ultimately going to achieve it. And I find so often couples get into this 10 to 12-year mark and their kids are slowly getting a little bit older and they're kind of looking around at themselves, imagining a future when they become empty nesters. And I'll have couples tell me, well, what do we do next? What are we doing? right? Are we just going to kind of sit around? Are we just going to buy a condo in Florida and go to the beach? Like, what are we doing? And there's this sense of malaise that can set in. Again, it's not bad to have a condo in Florida. I wish I could have a condo in Florida. But, but the idea is, like, is that a part of your mission and vision? What is your marriage for? And so I don't care if you've been here when you've been married 30 years or three months, it is never too late to have a mission statement. It's never too late to together as a husband and wife come together and say, okay, hey, what do we want this to be about? It doesn't have to have a lot of fancy language. It doesn't have to sound like you're, you know, the Apostle Paul writing an epistle. It can just be some bullet points of like, hey, what are we about? What are we for? And then how do we evaluate that? You know, maybe on a quarterly or an annual, uh, an annual time frame, we kind of just check in. Hey, are we staying faithful to our mission? Are we fulfilling the mission uh, that we believe God has called us to? So that's the first application. Number two, marriage not only helps us bear God's mission, but it also helps us to incarnate God's love to others, right? It gets embodied in this relationship, I think, in one of the most true and practical and pure ways than what we will ever have opportunity to do in any other relationship. And here's what I mean. In John's final epistles, uh, he gives us, I think, one of the one of the simplest but most profound definitions of what real love looks and feels and sounds like. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, I'll read it for you. John says, this is love. And you're like, great. Like, okay, he's about to tell us what it is, so get ready. Pen ready. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us, right? I mean, it's an astounding passage, right? That this love, right, that God has for us and that He demonstrates towards us in Christ you and I get the privilege, and I would also say the responsibility then to demonstrate and to live that out faithfully with the people that God has placed in our lives. What we realize then is love is less so a feeling, and it's much more a person and an action, right? That love is embodied in Christ and in what Christ does for us, and that then is what you and I get the privilege to be able to participate in each and every day, that we get to show, right, that we belong to Christ, right, John 13, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have what? 
that you have love for one another. Well, what kind of love is that? Is it just a, an erotic love? Is it just like a, a brother-sister love? No, it is a self-sacrificial love. It, it is a love that every single day seeks to wake up and says, listen, I'm going to take my needs and my desires, right? I'm going to place them at the foot of the cross. I'm going to seek to serve the person to whom God has placed me in this marriage relationship. And so what you see is a complete upside down, right, from what culture tells us about what real love is, right? And in a cultural view of marriage, right, marriage is all about finding someone who meets your needs and meets your desires, who helps facilitate your voyage of self-discovery. And Scripture says, no, it's about loving and serving the other person. It's about emptying yourself like Christ did. It's about self-sacrificially loving the other individual. And here's, again, if you're already thinking like this, here's oftentimes what husbands or wives will tell me. Well, yeah, it's nice if you're doing that, and it would be nice, though, if the other person was doing that back to you. So it's a little bit of kind of give to get. Like, yeah, I hear this call to, like, self-sacrifice all day, but could you tell that to my spouse? Because I feel like I've been doing that for 10 or 12 years, and, and he can't even pick up his laundry, right? Like, let's, let's just start there, right? Could we talk about that? And what I come back to then is that's where if you don't have a biblical portrait of love and of the gospel of marriage, then it very will, it very quickly will turn into a give to get. Well, yeah, I'm okay to self-sacrificially love if... I'm self-sacrificially loved, right? That's why the five love languages, I think, is so popular now, which is, I think, it's fun in terms of a descriptive way, but it's not helpful if you live out your life like that of, hey, here's how I have to be loved, and here's now how I have to love others in return. Scripture says it's not about that. It's about self-sacrificial love. And the only way that we do that is when we ourselves, as Christians, as children of God, meditate and live out on the reality that we are fully loved and known by God. So sometimes part of the reason why it's hard for us to self-sacrificially love without expectation of something in return is because we, as believers, are not fully grounded in the love that God has for us. So when we realize that, listen, we were not ourselves lovable, right? But yet God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. And if you go on later through that passage in Romans 5, Paul describes us in a lot of other ways, none of which are attractive. He says, you were ungodly, you were a sinner, you were weak, and you were an enemy, right? And yet, in the midst of all that, being weak, ungodly, a sinner, uh, God still loved you. He still pursued you, right? So, think about your relationship with your spouse and the opportunity to self-sacrificially love them. If you find it hard to move towards your spouse in self-sacrificial love, then maybe the checkpoint for your heart today is, am I fully resting in that type of love in my relationship with God? Do I fully understand the depth and the riches of the love that God showed me when I didn't deserve it, when I was, when I was hell-bent on pursuing my own way? Because if you really get that, then that becomes the engine, that becomes the motivation, that becomes the catalyst then that pushes you towards that self-sacrificial love uh, towards your spouse. So that's our second point. Number one, it bears God's mission. Marriage incarnates God's love, and then we'll land in the time that we have with this third one. Marriage ultimately transforms you into God's image. Again, a lot of times I do a ton of marriage counseling. I'll ask people first session, I'll say, hey, what do you want out of our time together? Like, what is your goal? Nine times out of ten, I get some type of permutation of, um, I want a good marriage. I want a happy marriage. Like, can't we just get along? I'd like for us not to fight, be on the same page. And again, 
I understand the intent of what they're saying, but as you and I have studied Scripture this morning, I think we would all say that that falls woefully short of the biblical vision that God has given to us. Again, you can have a good marriage. Unbelievers have good marriages, but you can have a good marriage and not have Christ. You cannot, you can, you can have a good marriage, but not have Jesus Christ. The purpose of marriage as we pursue the glory of God is that as we are pursuing the glory of God together, is that you and I are becoming more and more like Christ. We are maturing and flourishing in Christ. Tim Keller writes this. He says, the essence of marriage then is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. The essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. It is about helping your spouse as you self-sacrificially love them, not giving to get something from them, but helping them to achieve their highest good. And what is their highest good? Remember, we can only answer the question of what is their highest good in light of what are they created for and what are they created for? To be image bearers of the living God. So the good is that they become more like Christ. Now, here's the problem. You and I in marriage or at least I know I do this, you might not do this, but my goal a lot of times in marriage is trying to transform my spouse into whose image? My image, right? I, it would be a lot better if my wife thought like me, talked like me, wanted the same things I wanted, and a lot of times so many of our conflicts in marriage are about me trying to force my wife to be in my image. Well, you know, if you drove like me or handled traffic like me or did this or managed it like this, and what we easily can get into is we think about marriage again as essentially as meeting my needs. And so we want to transform our spouse into our image rather than helping our spouse become all that God created and designed for them to be. And so when we think about this marriage relationship, you know, here's a simple question that Paul really gives to husbands, especially in Ephesians 5, where he talks about husbands and the sanctification of the wife. Just a simple uh, litmus test or barometer or goal or whatever that you might ask yourself is, man, does my spouse look more like Christ than they did a year ago? Does my spouse look more like Christ than they did five years ago? Does my spouse look like Christ more than they did 10 years ago? Now, now, we all know in progressive sanctification that that road oftentimes has detours and bumps in the road. There's valleys of the shadow of death, and there, there are green pastures. But the overall trajectory, friends, does your wife love Christ more? Does she treasure Christ more? Does she want to pursue Christ more? And does your husband love Christ more? Does he want to treasure Christ more? If that's not happening, right? I'm not saying it's the end of the world, but it might be time to, to kind of raise the, raise the flag and say, hey, we, we might need help here. We might need to have a little bit of a come-to-Jesus conversation and reevaluate what we're doing, right? That simple question then of, is my spouse becoming more like Christ, then gets answered in light of, well, what does it mean to be transformed into Christ's image? Well, it means that, that we do what He calls us to do. We are called then to love God and to love others, right? When we think about the great commandment, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Well, it means that we follow Him. What does it mean to follow him? Well, we, we follow what he tells us to do and Christ has told us. Listen, you take all the law, all the prophets, you can, you can boil it down into these two summary things, loving God and loving others. Man, does my spouse love God and does he love others today more than he did two weeks ago? Does my wife love God and love others more than she did two weeks ago? And friends, I will tell you, don't ask the question unless you want to be convicted, because I know on any given day, myself included, I realize I fall woefully short of that. And if my wife were here, uh, you know, she would tell you that. She'd say, amen. You know, that's, that's definitely the case. And 
we need reminders like this then. We need some of these watershed moments then in our marriage to kind of shake us, arrest us out of our moribund nature and say, okay, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? What are you pursuing? What are you after? And so I hope that today as we kind of conclude this first session, some of these things that we talked about will just continue to live at the back of your mind and that you and your spouse will hopefully have opportunity to come and revisit those. But what we're going to do now is we're going to take a 15-minute break. We're going to come back. We'll talk about building connection with your spouse. Uh, So we'll kind of gather back in here at 1015 and go from there. Thanks. Thanks.